0: Good morning, give praise to God for a gathering like this, time to sing and meditate on the scriptures and just once again reminded of the children being here, how gracious God has been to us to call us, those of us who are Christian parents, to call us to belong to him and that that would mean that our children are being raised in the Lord. What a blessing to us. What a hopeful blessing as we look out into the future, as we pray to God about their salvation, as we ask God to save them and to, to keep them and to providentially work in their lives and grant them wisdom and all the things that we pray for our kids. What a blessing to know that they are being raised in the Lord and that they are being raised around other believers. You know, it's as a parent, it uh, is... It's something that I take very seriously to know that there are other Christian adults in the lives of my kids. That they're not just seeing mom and dad as Christian parents, but as Christians, but they're also seeing other adults. They're also seeing other people of God who are living out their Christian faith, and they're seeing the authenticity of that. So we just give God thanks this morning as Christian parents. I know I do. I'm grateful as I see our kids go back there. If you would please go with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2 verses 23 to 25. Exodus 2:23 to 25. Last week for Easter or Resurrection Sunday, we were in Matthew's gospel and we looked at on Good Friday we looked at the crucifixion and death passages at the end of Matthew's gospel and then we took we picked up with the burial of Jesus, and then took it all the way to the Great Commission on Resurrection Sunday, looking at that large chunk of Scripture at the end of Matthew's Gospel, being reminded of what Christ did for us on the cross to take away our sins, and how on the third day He was raised victoriously from the dead. So that's what we did last Sunday, but today we return To our series on Exodus. And so if you're visiting with us this morning, we go through books of the Bible. We're now in Exodus and you'll see the posters. We always try to pick a couple of passages from the book we're in to put up on the wall just to orient us even as we walk in here and prepare our hearts for worship. So that's where we are again today. We return to the Israelites enslaved in Egypt and Moses living away from Egypt as a fleeing exile in Midian. And so we're looking at these ancient places, these ancient names, and we are wondering always as we go through, maybe you are this morning, what does this have to do with me? And there are lots of ways we can answer that question, but the way that I always like to answer it as Christians this morning is that we are reading our story. So it's much like opening up and reading a history of your family uh, you'd probably be interested to know if you found some your your great grandfather, your grandfather or grandmother had left a, a a history of the family up in the attic somewhere, and you stumbled upon it and began to flip through it and see old pictures and begin to read stories of people you don't even know, but people who were your ancestors. Uh, It is similar as we read through stories like this. This is not just distant stories that have a moral tale. I think sometimes these Old Testament stories are treated that way. They're treated as sort of moralistic stories, examples of how we are to conduct ourselves. But as we go through the Bible, we find that often the heroes of the Bible aren't very heroic. Oftentimes the heroes of the Bible show themselves to be as broken as we are. And We know that they are. But as we go through these stories, we realize as Christians that we are reading our story. This is the story of how it came to be that we would be sitting here this morning worshiping God with a new heart, forgiven of our sins, having hope of the resurrection of the dead, believing in a crucified and raised Jewish man who is also God incarnate, who? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the reason why we teach our kids about Christ. It's the reason our kids just walked out of that door a moment ago, some of them, and went to learn about Christ. So we're very much reading our own story. So take these distant names, take these distant places, and fold them into your gratitude to God for what he has done to save you. The Exodus is one of, if not the most famous story in the Bible. Probably there are many people who have not grown up in church or who have not had very much exposure to the Bible who still know this story or at least have some idea of who Moses is and have read of the parting of the Red Sea and the plagues in Egypt and so on and so forth. It is probably the most famous story in the Bible. God sends Moses to lead the enslaved Israelites out of Egypt. That's the big idea. If you could sum it up in one sentence, there it is. God sends Moses to rescue, to deliver the enslaved Israelites out of Egypt. But where does all of this begin, this Exodus story? So far... We've seen that it goes back to God's prophecy and God's preparation. We can take the story of the Exodus, this most famous of biblical stories, and we can trace it back to God's prophecy and God's preparation. We see God's prophecy at the end of Genesis 15, verses 13 to 16. This is what God, hundreds of years before the story of the Exodus, this is what God said to Abraham Then the Lord said to Abram, "'Know for certain that your offspring "'will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs "'and will be servants there, "'and they will be afflicted for 400 years, "'but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, "'and afterward they shall come out with great possessions.'" That's the Exodus. "'As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. "'You shall be buried in a good old age.'" And they shall come back here, that is Canaan, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so this here, God tells Abraham what's going to happen in the future. And he foretells, he tells Abraham of two things. One is the Exodus And the other is the conquest of Canaan, the exodus under Moses, the conquest of Canaan under Joshua, that God will rescue his people. He will bring judgment on the Egyptians to glorify his name, and he will bring judgment on the Amorites, those living in Canaan who have sinned greatly against the Lord. How? He will bring his people in as an army of swords, as a flood of swords to judge the people of of Canaan. So for hundreds of years this had been known. God had not veiled this. He had made this known prophetically to Abram. We've also seen God's preparation through the first two chapters of Exodus. So tracing the Exodus back to this prophecy and then tracing the Exodus back to all of this preparation. God providentially brought the Israelites to Egypt through Joseph. They multiply and the Egyptians begin to enslave and oppress them. The more they are oppressed, we are told, the more they multiply. Every strike of the whip from the Egyptian taskmasters means greater multiplication by the Lord. So what does Pharaoh do? He resorts to killing their baby boys. And during this period, God saves one baby boy by having him adopted by one of Pharaoh's Daughters, and she names him Moses. Moses, probably one of the most famous names in human history. And when this boy Moses grows up, he identifies with his people. He chooses, as we are told in Hebrews chapter 11, he chooses to identify himself with his people rather than the Egyptians. He chooses to identify himself with a slave people. Rather than the royal courts of Egypt. You know, we read these things too quickly. This is utterly amazing. He identifies with the Hebrews. He shows this by killing an Egyptian slave master who is beating one of the Hebrews. And I said last week, uh, or two weeks ago, we tend to read that story and we just get lost in the ethical questions of what Moses did to the Egyptian. And we just, we just lose sight of what the narrative is even about. God the Holy Spirit through Moses, is communicating this overarching truth to us. Whatever we are to make of Moses' act against the Egyptian uh, taskmaster, the, the point of that narrative is that Moses is firmly identifying himself as a Hebrew. He identifies himself more with the oppressed Hebrew slave than with the oppressive Egyptian taskmaster killing the Egyptian who is beating one of his people. This results in Moses having to flee for his life. He ends up in Midian, which is in the Arabian Peninsula. And there he settles down and starts a family. So what's the end result? Of all of this that we've seen so far, God has prepared and is preparing a deliverer. So as I said before, we're tracing the exodus back to the prophecy, tracing it back to God's preparations, and all of this is God's preparation of a deliverer. God has given Moses a heart of faith, a love for his people, and compassion and courage For defending the oppressed. We see all of that in chapter two. That very short, actually, just the latter part of chapter two, that very short passage tells us all of that about Moses' heart. It tells us all of that about God's providence outside of Moses and God's providence inside of Moses. You know, all of that debate over nature versus nurture and all of that really becomes utterly irrelevant. Because whether it is nature, genetically, or nurture, how Moses was raised, it doesn't matter because in God's providence, Moses is being prepared in this way. God has given Moses Egyptian training, but has removed him from the allurements of Egypt. You see that at the end of the story as we came to it a couple of weeks ago there as Moses flees Egypt and goes to Midian? He has all the training that that he would need. Forty years he lived as an Egyptian prince. He has all the training, all the wisdom, all the learning, all the insight that would have come from being raised in that way. But God removes him from all of the temptations and allurements of Egypt and makes him a shepherd in Midian. When the time is right, God will send Moses back to Egypt to deliver his people, Israel. So we see all of this preparation. Prophecy about the Exodus and preparation for the Exodus. That's what we've seen so far. But today, we come to a crucial turning point in the narrative. The intervention of God that leads to the Exodus. And this is Deliverance Anticipated. And that's the title for the sermon this morning, Deliverance Anticipated. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read this turning point, point passage, just verses 23 to 25, a short little text for us this morning. But it really is the hinge of Exodus. It really is the turning point. And it sets up everything else we will read throughout the book. It is anticipating. You could say this, by the time you read the last words... Of verse 25, and God knew. When you read those words, the Exodus is as good as done. God's salvation, his rescue of his people is as good as done. So let's read God's word together. This is God's holy word. Chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You can go ahead and be seated. These are powerful words, words to strengthen and fortify the people of God across time and across space, wherever we are, whenever we are, these are words to fortify us in the Lord and our hope in God. So let's pray and ask for God's blessing over this time of instruction from his word. Father, we're grateful for another opportunity to be together, to sit under your word, to submit to its authority. Lord, it is your authority. How else are we to obey you How else are we to follow you? How else are we to submit to you and call you in truth, Lord, if not under your holy word? God, we thank you that we have it here to look at, even little passages like this filled with treasure, filled with richness and honey for our souls. God, we pray that you would open our ears this morning and our hearts to hear what you have for us, that you would. Indeed, instruct us that you would sharpen our minds. Lord, that you would draw us to yourself. Wherever we are, that you would draw us to yourself. That you would draw us to the Redeemer, to the Deliverer, to the Rescuer, to our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has brought us out of slavery to sin and brought us into new life in this promised land and who will one day bring us ultimately to the promised land of a new heaven and a new earth. Father, we largely Gentiles in here this morning praise you that we have been grafted into the people of God, that you have made us partakers. Lord, we are grateful. We pray that you would increase our gratitude, God, that you would help us to live thankful lives Lord, forgive us for our sins, and we pray that this morning you would expose our sin to us, that we would grieve over it, that we would beat our chest before you and say, have mercy on me, God, that we would confess our sins and find rest through Christ. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who is not a believer, who is not a Christian. Lord, would you show them your glory? Would they see that you are far more glorious, far more precious, far more beautiful and good and satisfying than anything this world has to offer? Father, that they would indeed recognize that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, that, that it is a dreadful and horrific thing to come under God's judgment. But, Father, also that they would see how joyful, wonderful, and glorious. Beautiful, you are, and they'd be drawn to you to know you, that they would want to know you as their father. Lord, we pray that your spirit would illuminate your word and guide us through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this short passage anticipating Israel's deliverance can really be divided into two parts. Just two parts, and here they are. These are our points for this morning. If you want to write them down, uh, two points, two parts. First, Israel's anguished prayer. And for that, we're going to look at verse 23. And secondly, God's active response, verses 24 to 25. Very simple uh, text here. We have uh, the people of God praying to God, and we have God actively responding to those prayers. So that's what we're going to look at as we go through these three verses this morning. So let's begin first with Israel's anguished prayer. So look with me at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. You could say that so far in Exodus, we haven't really seen the relational component between God and his people. We haven't really seen interaction between them. This kind of vertical movement. We we haven't seen that really between God and his people. This relationship between the two. We've certainly seen God providentially working We've seen God preparing and multiplying and protecting and blessing. We saw God mentioned with the Hebrew midwives back in chapter 1. Remember, the Hebrew midwives are told by the Pharaoh that they are to kill the Hebrew baby boys as they come out of the womb. Probably to suffocate them without the mother even knowing. And we read there that the Hebrew midwives said said they weren't going to do that. They didn't say that to Pharaoh, but they didn't do it. They disobeyed Pharaoh because they feared God more than Pharaoh. And God blessed them with families of their own. And God multiplied his people. So you can't read anything that we've read so far in Exodus chapters 1 and 2 without recognizing clearly that God is at work. God's hand is everywhere doing actively all of these things. We've seen God working in the background on behalf of his people. But we haven't really seen God relating to his people. All of that changes today with Israel's anguished prayer. As we look at this verse, we see three things. And this is just going to help us to walk through this one verse. So three things we see in this verse. One, a disappointing transition, then a deep distress, and finally a desperate prayer. So let's look at each of those. First, a disappointing transition. Over centuries of enslavement and oppression, Israel has had various rulers over them. They've had to face various pharaohs. We haven't been given detail about that. Moses doesn't go through and tell us, it was in the year of Pharaoh so-and-so, and it was this pharaoh's daughter who adopted me. And it was in this year that this began to happen, and in this year that this began to happen. But what we know is that there's quite a bit of time that has passed. Various pharaohs, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again today, today, Part of the theological point of that throughout Exodus is that these pharaohs don't get names. Exodus is about upholding the name of God. Remember, the Egyptians are meant to look away from the pharaoh. They're meant to look away from Egypt's so-called gods. And they're meant to see the glory of Yahweh, the glory of the God of the Hebrews, the glory of the Lord. And so the name of God, his character, his might, his power is what stands up tall in this book. And the pharaohs aren't even named. So we've seen that throughout. So we don't get a lot of the historical details, but we know that there's a lot of time that passes. We see that here at the very beginning of this verse. Various pharaohs along the way. The most recent ruler Or, rulers we've read about tried to kill the Hebrew boys and then later went after Moses because he had killed the Egyptian taskmaster. Perhaps the Israelites are expecting some sort of change to take place, some change to their current situation. Maybe they're thinking, after this ruler dies, then things will get better. If we can only get through the reign of this particular Pharaoh, maybe we'll have some relief. But as we see here, that's not what happens at all. That's not what happens at all. When the king of Egypt dies, another takes his place. The policy of enslavement, Continues, And so twice in this verse, in verse 23, it is put very much in our face, slavery, slavery. Nothing changes for this people. When this guy dies, when this Pharaoh dies, this, this brutal Pharaoh, and maybe it's the previous one who was killing the babies, we're not told how long that policy of killing the Hebrew babies lasts. We're not told if that just continues right up until this point, or if it stopped and we had another Pharaoh. But regardless, one thing we see clearly from this verse is that any hope they had of things changing with the passing of time, any hope they had of things changing with a shift In the political situation, that I think speaks to us today. You can think, oh man, if only this person would get elected. If only this would happen politically. Any hope they had of that vanishes. The policy of enslavement continues. This is a disappointing transition. Let me just say to you this morning, maybe you can relate to this situation in your life. Unmet expectations, extreme disappointments, periods in your life when you thought things would change or get better, but they didn't. You hoped, and you hoped, and you waited, and you waited, and you just knew. You just knew that at this turning point, You get this new job, or you move, or you have this child, or you get over this sickness, or you get this thing sorted. Whatever it is, circumstantially, societally, politically, emotionally, whatever it is, you just knew that when that happened, things were going to change. And they don't. Unmet expectations we need to see here this morning as the people of God that this is what the Israelites were facing and that tells us something that I think helps us out and it encourages us and that is that this experience of having these expectations and those expectations being unmet in the way we want them to be met is nothing new This is nothing new for the people of God. This is nothing new for those who are in a state of waiting on the Lord. Nothing new for those who are waiting on Christ's return. They couldn't perceive all the ways God was working, and neither can we. So you might be here this morning and have these unmet expectations. You thought it was going to change. It doesn't change. But, like the Israelites, we need to consider the fact that God is very much at work. God is very much intimately involved in every aspect of our lives. His providence reigns, His sovereignty reigns. And though these expectations we have are unmet, God is still working. He still loves His people, He's still in control. So we see a disappointing transition. Secondly, we see a deep distress. It is difficult for us to measure the suffering of the Israelites in this period. We read accounts of suffering. And if we haven't experienced anything like that, it's very difficult for us to relate to it. It's very difficult for us to really feel and understand the weight of it. It's difficult to measure what they were going through. The pain, the grief, the toil would have been unrelenting and excruciating. Mothers were giving birth to their sons only to see them thrown, crying into the Nile River, never to be seen again. Men were torn away from their families and made to work to exhaustion or even death. To watch their sons be beaten... Sometimes to death, undoubtedly, by these Egyptian overlords and slave drivers. This was the condition of God's people, not just for decades, but for centuries. For centuries. Remember how this enslavement was described in chapter 1, verse 11. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Or verses 13 to 14, so they ruthlessly, a word that that means with violence, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. You know, when a word is repeated like that, especially when it comes at the beginning and the end, it is meant to basically summarize and define everything that's there. It's like a big label over everything you read there. And that's the label. Ruthlessness. That's the situation for the Israelites. This is not nine to five slavery. This is not slavery with a little leather whip, kind of like you might use on a horse. This is brutal slavery of God's people. With what little energy they had, we are told here in verse 23 that they groaned. And it's used collectively. They as a people groaned from the depths of their souls. They groaned. This is an expression of deep Distress, And maybe it's one that you've experienced in your life. Maybe you read this and you think, I can relate to that. I have groaned, not just felt pain, not just felt some grief, not just had some discomfort or faced some difficulties, but I have groaned from the depth of my soul. The word used here in Exodus chapter 2 is the same word repeated throughout lamentations. There's a book called Lamentations in the Old Testament. A lamentation is a a crying out in grief to lament injustices and to lament awful situations. It is the same word repeated throughout the book of Lamentations. As the people groan, Under the situation of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon coming in to Jerusalem, destroying the city, destroying the temple, and carrying off the people of God. That was also a period of great groaning. But that's not the only word used here. We have slavery, we have groaning, and we have crying out for help. That is the deep distress of the Israelites during this time. We need to see that, the weight of it even though I think it is immeasurable from our standpoint. Third, we see a desperate prayer. Where do the Israelites turn as their suffering has been heaped up beyond measure? It says here that they cried out for help and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. In other words, you could say it this way. They cried out to God for help. They cried out to God to rescue them. God, have mercy, like we sang earlier. God, help us. God, rescue us. Their cry went up to the Lord. This verse is very important in giving us one of the key characteristics of God's people. You know, I love, as we go through the scriptures, we get all sorts of authenticating marks we get all sorts of insight into what does it really mean to be a Christian? You know, we, we still live in a society where you ask people, are you a Christian? And there will still be many people who aren't truly born-again believers in Christ, who haven't been transformed, who don't know the Lord, who haven't been saved, whose sins haven't been forgiven, who will say, yes, I'm a Christian. And last week at Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we know churches are always more packed on that day than others. Probably many among us who who would say, I am a Christian who don't know the Lord, who have never been saved. So it's helpful when we go through scripture to take note of instances where we see a mark. We see a mark of a, a true believer, a mark of what it means to be the people of God. Here we see one of those marks. We are those who cry out to God. Not just a generic God, not just some general God, but, but we cry out to God out of the history of redemption. That's what you see here with the Israelites. They are crying out to God out of the stream of the history of redemption. They're crying out to God as the people of God. They are crying out to the God of Israel as the sons of Israel. That is what it looks like to be a true Christian, is to be one who cries out to God. We see this theme repeated in the Psalms. Psalm 142, 1, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. Psalm 18, verse 6, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. Psalm 120, verse one. In my distress, I called to the Lord. We find this sort of language all throughout the scriptures, but especially in the Psalms. We cry to God for help in all kinds of ways. And let me say this. This is the way a person becomes a Christian. So maybe you're here this morning, you're not a believer, or you don't know whether or not you're a believer. Let me tell you how a person becomes a Christian. They cry out to God for rescue. They cry out to God for help. We see this throughout the New Testament with Jesus. Little pictures of what it means to cry out to Jesus for rescue, for salvation. Like blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10 verse 47. This blind man here's Jesus is coming. Jesus is around. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's a cry for help. Like the man seeking healing for his son. Mark chapter 9 verse 24. I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me Lord. Help me Savior. Help me Messiah. Help me Christ. Like the tax collector in Luke chapter 18 verse 13. Jesus tells this contrasting story of one prideful Pharisaic prayer happy about his own achievements but the tax collector Jesus says standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to God to become a Christian you must get to a point where you can't even lift your eyes to God because you recognize how holy he is how just he is how perfect he is and how much you are not Those things. God is sinless. We are sinful, spotted and stained from the core. We must get to a point where we realize that by God's grace. And we fall on our faces before God. Our eyes fall where we can't even look to God because we recognize how holy and good and righteous he is and how much we are sinful. And what do we read here? He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is a cry for help. And this is what it looks like to become a Christian. So ask yourself, Has that happened to you? We cry out to God, not just at our conversion, but in every area of life. Once we cry out to God for salvation, then that begins a story of crying out to God. That's the first of many outcries, the first of many instances of crying out to God for help. And we find help in time of need through the cross. We find help in time of need at the throne of grace. We find all that we need through Jesus Christ. But it begins a life of crying out to God for everything in life. Notice here that the Israelites didn't look to the world to provide some, some form of rescue. They depended on God, they cried out to him. Now it's interesting here, you know, it does tell us about the, 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 the imperfection of Israel's faith. It reminds us of the imperfection of our faith. It, it took this long. Whatever happened collectively in the hearts of the people of Israel, the sons of Israel, it didn't happen until this point. I think we are to get that from the text. There's something different here. There's a transition here. The suffering is great. The disappointment is great. But it's only here at this point that we are told that they actually look upward and they cry out to God to rescue them. So let me just ask you this this morning, Christian. Where do you look as you face the difficulties of life? There are many. There are many. Where do you look? Do you look to yourself? Do you start churning your wheels, type A people? Start trying to figure out how you're gonna fix your own problems? You start leaning on somebody else? You go from self-reliance to sort of dependence and entitlement, sort of swing between those two, or maybe your personality is driven toward one of, of those two extremes, or everywhere along the spectrum. Leaning on self, I can do it, or leaning on somebody else. They can do it for me. They can help me. It's not what we see here. Let our cries go up to God. As the people of God, let our cries go to him. And what will God do when our cries go up to him? And that brings us to our second part this morning, and that is God's active response. And for that, look with me at verses 24 to 25. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. A moment ago, I quoted Psalm 120, verse 1, and it begins in this way. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and I stopped it there because that was the point being made then. But it's important for us that we take careful note of how the verse ends. So it begins in this way, in my distress I called to the Lord, and it ends in this way, and he answered me. And he answered me. These aren't just uh, vain cries. These aren't just uh, pining after something. These aren't just words falling into or floating away in the air. In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. And that's exactly how Moses later describes this situation in Numbers and Deuteronomy. So let me read you two verses where Moses reflects back on this particular incident Numbers 20, verse 16. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice. And again, in Deuteronomy 26, verse 7, Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The Lord heard. Isn't it amazing to think that when we speak to God, he really does listen, he really does hear, he really does see, he really does respond. Hear this. Every single time, every single time, God answers us. These verses repeat the name God four times. And the writer, Moses, is trying to make this very, very clear to us. He repeats God's name four times. Now, when you have one subject with four verbs As we're teaching our children to write, we would encourage them not to repeat the subject every time they use a different verb. It's just unnecessary. You don't don't do that. You might want to throw in a pronoun, or you might just want to use a comma and put in your subject and then list those verbs. That's not what Moses does, and it's not because he is a terrible writer. It is because he wants to burn into the minds of his readers the name of God. He wants to burn into the minds of his readers that the same Elohim, the same God in the very first verse of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This God is there. This God hears, he responds, he answers, he shows up. It is God. This is an intense picture of divine activity in this short space two verses an intense picture of divine activity god heard god remembered god saw and god knew this is a flurry of divine activity in response to what in response to prayer to prayer this is similar to what we find with Daniel in chapter nine, verse 23. At the beginning of, the, this is the angel speaking to Daniel. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. So what, are we, what are we getting there? What are we getting there? Is that this, this, this man, this dust, this sinful man, as we all are, even Daniel, who is presented in a glowing way, Even Daniel, this this sinful man, born in Adam, opens his mouth and says words in his own language to the infinite, eternal God, and God responds at the very beginning of those words and sends an angel to speak, sets in motion a response to his prayer. This is what we see about God's responsiveness. God hears and answers our prayers. We need to get that, people of God. God hears and answers our prayers. You know, this weekend, we're having a men's retreat, and the focus of the men's retreat is on prayer. And let me just encourage you, today is the last. and Daniel and Stan will think I planned this. I didn't plan this. It just kind of came up. But uh, I'm glad uh, we we can put this out there. So next weekend, we're having our men's retreat from Friday to Sunday morning. And it's on the topic of prayer. We're gonna have three talks, three sermons on prayer. One Friday night, one on Saturday morning, and one on Saturday evening. It's a great time of fellowship. It's a great time of instruction, praying together, spending time together. Today is the absolute last day. We, we sort of push this out and push this out and push this out. It is the absolute last day to sign up for the men's retreat. So wives, you should be looking at your husbands, not thinking, oh man, I'm gonna have the kids all by myself this weekend. You should be thinking to yourself, my husband needs to go to this. He needs to be a praying man. So it's not something that we want to beat you over the head with, but it is something that we want to strongly with elbow nudge you to participate in. So if you're, if you're available this weekend, please go to that. I think you'll be encouraged. I think you'll be built up in the Lord. And I think you'll be built up in this most holy activity of prayer. As we finish up this morning, I want us to see what God does and what God does not do. As we think about God's response, as we think about God's answer, I want you to see what he does and what he does not do. So first, what he does. All of this language of perception shows that God is fully engaged with the suffering of his people. This is something we need to recognize as well. We're not just seeing here that God answers prayer. That's true, and that's absolutely important, central. We need to get that very clear. But we're also seeing that God relates to his people in their sufferings. God is engaged with the sufferings of his people. I think sometimes we forget that. You know, when we call out to God, we say, God, why are you letting this happen to me? We should cry out to God, but we begin to sort of grumble and fuss and moan and groan about our circumstances, and we begin to think, you know, why, 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 why? All of this stuff. We need to be reminded that God is not aloof from our sufferings. We know that because of the cross. The cross tells us that God has entered into our sufferings in the most intense and immediate way. God became man and dwelt among us. We behold his glory, and he died for our sins on the tree. He suffered in his body. He bore the wrath of God. He bore the wrath of his Father on our behalf. God has come into our world and taken upon himself our sufferings, the greatest suffering of sin, death, and God's wrath. And so we're reminded here early on in the Bible, that God is engaged with his people's suffering. So what do we do with this language of remembering? All of this perception language, what do we do with this language of remembering? Uh, you read this, you think, God remembered? I mean, I understand that if I say, I remember where I put my keys, or I remembered that I needed to go to this appointment, or I remember this. And That makes sense on a human level, but how could we say that God remembered? Well, some very unintelligent, and I emphasize that, very unintelligent readings of the Bible have led to ridiculous theologies that paint God in this picture of sort of moving with the tide of man. It's a different God. It's a different religion. That's not the God of the Bible. So what are we to do as those who worship the God of the Bible, the God who is sovereign, the God who knows all, who is omniscient and omnipotent, who's always present, who is eternal, What do we do with this language of remembering? Well, I want to give you a quote from one commentator named Douglas Stewart. I think he explains this very well. This is what he says. The average Israelite likely knew at least something about the Abrahamic covenant. And it may be useful for the modern reader to realize that the term remember, as we read here in Hebrew is idiomatic for covenant application rather than covenant recollection. So we might be tempted to read this word and think of remembering in the way we think about remembering. But what he's saying here is that the Hebrew reader would have immediately known, and he lists a a bunch of uses of this word, would have immediately known that this refers not to God recollecting, oh yeah, Abraham, I better get busy doing something. But rather, God actively and intentionally applying his covenant in that moment. He goes on to say this. In other words, to say God remembered his covenant is to say God decided to honor the terms of his covenant at this time. So, it, so it's God working in history, in space and time. And it's at this time that God applies the outworking of his covenant. It's at this time that God applies what he told Abraham way back that he would do. He goes on to say this. Thus the idiom, idiom is just a way, a way of speech that, that a, a, a native reader would understand immediately and an outside reader doesn't really understand Thus the idiom never implies that anything was in fact forgotten or pushed to the back of God's mind. So you run across any kind of theology that wants to make a big to-do about words like this and, and come up with this view of God based on words like this. It's just a very foolish, a very simplistic, and I think we could even use the word stupid because it is in the Bible, in Proverbs. Go and read it. It's, it's, a, it's a very poor reading of the Bible, And I would even argue it's just a poor reading of of literature. It's just a poor reading of a text to read something like this out of context and to build a theology on that that sees God as sort of moving with the tide of man and forgetting and sort of at the expense, uh, at the movement of our free will. There's theology out there. Quite educated people who teach these sorts of things about God who would go to passages like this and say, Look, see, that's how God is. So what about this language of knowing? We're told here, and God knew. Let me, let me give you another quote from another scholar named John McKay. He says, acknowledging them as his people and determining to act on their behalf. That is what this means, acknowledging them as his People and determining to act on their behalf. This knowing, it's just left dangling. It's powerful, the way this word ends, this verse. And God knew, and God knew. There's a lot packed into that, but what we have here is God acknowledging his people, showing concern for his people, and determining to act to save his people. God does this on account of his covenant with Abraham. Isaac, and Jacob. Throughout Genesis, we are told about this covenant. And I could go through and look at all of the details of it, but the big idea is that God would make Abraham into a great nation. God would bless him and make a people out of him. Kings would come from him. And the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth, would be blessed through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the offspring of Abraham. And God would give them the land. God would give them the land of Canaan. And what we're reminded of here about the Lord is that he is a promise making and a promise keeping God. God uh, doesn't hesitate to make promises because God can ensure that those promises are kept all throughout the Bible. All of biblical religion is built on promises. Promises from God. God tells us what he's going to do and he never forgets to do it. He tells us what he's going to do, and he never fails to do it. He never lets the ball drop. Nothing ever falls through the cracks. God is faithful to all of his promises. He's a covenant-keeping God. So we see what God does, but secondly, as we close, what does God not do? What does God not do in these Verses. This is really important for us as Christians, really going through the Christian life, on this pilgrimage, struggling today. I mean, undoubtedly, there are some here this morning who are feeling incredibly weighed down by the cares of life. We need to see what God does not do. He doesn't inform his people that he has heard their prayer. You see that? Crickets. Why would God do that? I mean, that's what we get, right? We're not told until later. God goes, we're going to see in chapter three, he goes and he gets Moses. He reveals himself to Moses and he deals with Moses' stubbornness and he calls Moses and sends Moses and Aaron. But it's later. For a while, we don't know exactly how long, but for a while, God's people, they make a prayer to God They cry out to God for help. They groan in the depths of their souls and they hear nothing from the Lord. Behind the veil, we see this flurry of divine creative activity. God, Elohim, heard, remembered, he saw, he knew, strong. They see nothing, they get no immediate response. And I want to say this to us, this is so often the case in our lives, right? We need to be reminded of that. We need to manage our expectations. We, we want to enslave God. We want to enslave God to our expectations. We want God to work in the way we want to write an instruction manual for God. Does it work that way? We don't boss God around. We, don't, we, don't, we have such limited, finite wisdom. We don't tell God how to wisely govern. We don't tell God how to oversee the lives of his people. We don't tell God how to grow his people and sanctify his people and see to the ultimate end of all the inner networks of, of his providence from every little speck of dust to the largest planets and suns. It doesn't work that way. God is... Wise and good and sovereign over all, and often we hear nothing, no response. What if this same intensity of divine activity is happening right now on your behalf? You've been praying. You've been talking to the Lord, you've been crying out to God, you've been groaning, and you hear nothing, you think God is silent, God doesn't know, God doesn't care, God doesn't act, and the same flurry of activity that we read in chapters 24 and 25 are going on on your behalf this very morning, you just can't see it. Well, I could say, what if that's happening? But that's not the way I should put it. It is happening. This morning, we can be assured as God's people, as Christians, that this is always happening. And the reason we know that is because we are told that Jesus Christ is our high priest. And he stands in the presence of God making intercession for us. In Romans 8, we were told that the Spirit himself makes intercession for us. The Spirit who lives inside of us makes intercession for us. This flurry of activity is always going on, people of God. It's always going on for those who are in Christ. So be assured today, as we close this morning, be assured today of God's active response. For Israel, their deliverance was anticipated. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, our final deliverance is likewise anticipated. Every time we pray and we know God hears, we know God answers, we know God responds, we may not see it, we may not perceive it, but God sees, God perceives, and he's with us, whether we know it or not. Colossians chapter three, verse four, reminds us of our future deliverance. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Titus chapter 2 verse 13. We are waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We're waiting. We're anticipating our deliverance. But here's what we need to see. Just as it was with Israel. It is as good as done. Let's pray. Father we thank you for... What you reveal to us in your word. We thank you for these powerful verses. These verses that remind us of who you are. And what it looks like to live the Christian life. And how difficult the Christian life will often be. And how many times in the Christian life we will feel alone. We will hear nothing. But God, what, what a wonderful encouragement to us today to be reminded of the fact that you are working and you are hearing and we never open our mouths to you in prayer and you turn a deaf ear. We never pray to you and you just ignore us or don't remember your covenant through the blood of your son. There's never a time when we call out to you in the name of Christ and you don't see and no, when you don't acknowledge us, and when you are not acting on our behalf, turning all for good and conforming us into the image of your Son. God, thank you for your word today. We pray that you would hide it in our hearts, that we would not sin against you. We pray for the Lord's Supper as we come to it now, that our hearts would be reverent and joyful. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.